Uh, if you have your Bibles, please open them to Isaiah 55. I want to give you a little bit of introduction to Isaiah. Uh, since I'm not preaching through the book, some of you may not be highly familiar with uh, this Old Testament prophet. Isaiah lived uh, during the time in which Israel went from a, a kind of a renaissance or a renovation of its political and financial strength in the early 700s. Remember, we're counting backwards. So think like 800 to about 750. Uzziah was king for a large part of that. Uzziah was this um, godly, faithful, and also very intelligent king. Um, the Bible describes him in ways that remind us in some ways of Solomon. He built up the strength of Israel's military. The nations around were in uh, somewhat disarray, and so Israel was able to thrive because the world powers, Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon, were kind of figuring themselves out. And so Israel, in the middle of that kind of power vacuum, thrived, and they were able to expand their territory and, and strengthen their financial and economic power. And as such, then, Israel becomes somewhat distracted. Both the northern tribes and the southern tribes uh, seem to lose their spiritual footing. And so when we come to the ministry of Isaiah, he's often challenging Israel to turn from their wickedness, to turn back to the Lord. Um, and in fact, Isaiah's ministry overlaps the um, captivity of the northern tribes where Assyria comes down in 722 and, and ruins the northern ten tribes, takes them captive. And he's ministering in Jerusalem. In fact, just a little known tidbit, Isaiah walks around without clothing for three years to preach to them the upcoming troubles. That's an effective illustration. Just... If you want to be heard well, be a prophet in the Old Testament, like Ezekiel. And these guys, are, it's rough stuff to be a prophet. Um, so Isaiah makes his point really clear that Israel is going to be taken and is going to be bound and, and stripped of its honor. And so he walks around and preaches and ministers to Israel during this time. So he sees the northern tribes fall and the southern tribes during his lifetime as well. Uh, Syria comes through and takes over almost the whole southern nation and surrounds Jerusalem, and then the Lord rescues Jerusalem. So Isaiah is ministering in a time in which the political turnabout for, for the nation is stark. They go from affluence and comfort. They go from being a distracted, and I would say ungodly people, who has a nominal, uh, and by that I mean in name only, confidence in God. But when you look at their kings and the nation themselves, they're confident in their own power. They're brokering peace treaties with Egypt and Babylon and Syria. That's not us, Syria. Syria. In order to protect themselves rather than trusting in God. And Isaiah is constantly challenging them to trust in the Lord and to turn from wickedness. Uh, we, we come to Isaiah 55. There's a little bit of debate about the exact timing of the the call here is he speaking to the the exiles in Babylon in the future, or is he writing to his contemporaries and turning to them? And I think the first few words tell us, "Come, everyone," means it really doesn't matter too much. We don't have to decide if he's writing to the contemporaries who are struggling with the Assyrian armies, or whether he's writing to the future Israelite 
saying, turn back to the Lord in Babylon and he'll rescue you. The point is pretty clear. Everyone needs to hear this. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Let me just pause and remind you of who he's talking to. He's talking to a nation that had struggled in affluence with being distracted and trusting in something other than God. And he's telling them, you're pursuing something that can never satisfy, right? Verse 2, why are you chasing? Why are you laboring? Why are you fighting for something that can never satisfy you? Why are you longing to, to get something when that something will not deliver on its promise? Why are you wasting your lives trusting in false hopes? This last Friday, our men going through 1 Samuel read this verse. I'll just paraphrase it. Uh, it's in chapter 12. I think it's verse 21. Uh, Do not pursue worthless things. They are worthless. And I, I think that's what Isaiah is saying, isn't it? Why, verse 2, do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? I think the theme of this text is seek the Lord for your soul's satisfaction. Seek the Lord for your soul's satisfaction. And so let me just like hit the application and then show you from the text where it, it drives that truth into our souls. We are told through movies and books and literature and social media that there are things that will satisfy. Whether it's relationship and romance, had the privilege of doing a wedding Friday, and I, I don't always say things like this, but there is no doubt in my mind that as people enter into marriage, there are a lot of expectations about satisfaction that are false expectations. The groom cannot bear the burden of fully satisfying his wife's romantic desires. And yet he's called to pursue her. There are needs that she's going to have for which he is not equipped. And yet, movies tell us they will live happily ever after. They won't. Not because their marriage is not sweet, but if the Lord is not the center, satisfaction is a mirage. But it's not just marriage, it's finances, it's insurance companies, it's cars, it's looking better, it's being more fit. And honestly, I love food. And the problem is, after a few hours, I'm hungry again. Food never truly satisfies. And so it's an apt illustration of the pursuit of the man. We constantly look for something to satisfy and in fact, the Lord is saying, seek me. Seek me for satisfaction. Seek me for the hope that you are placing in false hopes to be satisfied. So I want you to go back to verse 1. God freely offers abundant life. I'm stealing this from John. In John 10, Jesus as the good shepherd comes that we might have life and have it more abundantly, he says. But if you look at verse 1, he says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. He's making a point, 
Isaiah is saying, everyone is thirsty. That's all of us. Everyone who's hungry, that's all of us. Come and be filled. Be satisfied. And of course, we might say something like this. Well, I have nothing to buy that with. I have no money with which to buy the bread you're selling, the spiritual bread. And so the call is to come, and this bread has no price. That doesn't mean it's priceless the way you think of something as so valuable we couldn't price it out. It is that it's given without cost. It's given freely to all who come. Verse 2, you're spending your money, you're spending your lives, you're toiling, you're literally giving gold and silver away to the Egyptians to secure your borders. And they cannot satisfy that hope. Listen to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. He's not merely saying you'll be satisfied with rice and beans. He's saying, I'm going to give you good stuff, right? I'm going to give you rich food. Verse 3, incline your ear and come here that your soul may live. Now, you look at that. There are 12 verbs exhorting us. Let me just read the verbs to you. Come, come, come. Buy, eat, come, buy, listen, eat, delight yourself, incline your ear, hear, so that your soul may live. He starts with that metaphor of food. Come to this feast. Come and eat this rich food. Come and have your fill. And as he transitions, he says, listen, hear, and be filled. God is calling. He's calling you. And he's saying, come and be satisfied. And now he anchors that satisfaction, that free offer of abundant life. He anchors it in this covenantal language in verses, the end of verse 3 down through verse 5. He says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant. For those of you who are theologically trying to understand what that covenant is, it's a promise by God, probably the new covenant, that new promise but then he reminds them that this is the same type of language he used with David. He says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant um, in similar fashion to the one he made with David. And I would say it's, there's a relationship in this way. God is going to secure these promises in, in an outflow of his promises to David. So what were the promises to David? That David would have a son that would reign from his throne forever. It doesn't take us very much creativity, hopefully in the Christian church, to know who this son of David is. It's Jesus Christ, the son of David. So when he says that this promise to David, in fact, Acts says this promise is secured in Acts 13. This promise to David through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the eternal son of David who will reign on his throne forever. So when he says, come and, and get this food, you don't need money. It's given freely to all who come. So come, listen, hear, so that your soul may live. And says, this promise is secure through an everlasting promise that's grounded in the promises made to David in 2 Samuel 7. Now look at as he goes on. In verse 4, he says, I, I made him, that's David, to be a witness to the peoples, a leader, and a commander. Behold, probably speaking of the 
Davidic descendant here. So Jesus is who we know it to be now. Jesus will call a nation that he doesn't have a relationship with, a national relationship with. A nation that doesn't know you shall run to you. Now just in case you're not catching it, he's speaking to Israel about this Davidic king who's going to summon other nations. Other people outside of Israel are going to be summoned into his graces. To be clear, that's you and me. That this, this call to everyone starts out with a very Jewish orientation with this Davidic king coming, and then he says, and all of you come. Follow this Davidic king. Verse 5, behold, you shall call a nation you don't know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Again, speaking of that Davidic king. So God exalts Jesus, the son of David, so that all the nations can be satisfied in him. That's the picture of what's going on. So then we get the appeal of Isaiah then. God invites us to walk with him. Verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he was near. So this invitation for us to pursue the Lord, to seek after him, says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Remember, he's speaking to a distracted, idolatrous nation. A nation filled with people who would say, oh, I believe in Yahweh. He's my God. But their activity, their worship, their hopes, their pursuits do not show affection nor trust in Yahweh. And so God calls upon all of them, pursue the Lord, seek him. When do you seek the Lord? Well, he may be found. Call upon him because he is near. This is talking about the accessibility of our God. Now, this can be taken for granted. God is reigning from heaven. I still want you to talk to him, to seek him. The kindness of the Lord is so evident in this text. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. Can you and I just acknowledge real simply, if you were God, you would zap us all. And if you were God of Israel, you'd have been done with them centuries before. And there would have been no recovery. I mean, just put yourself in God's shoes, who from the call of Abraham had a very erratic people. I mean, how long would it have taken for you to say, you know what, let's just scrub this clean and restart? I mean, would you have gotten past Jacob? Or how about the brothers who sold their brother into slavery because they didn't like him because he was arrogant? And we sometimes, not saying who, sometimes have some sibling disagreements in our home. Can you imagine if one of them resulted in one of our children selling another child into slavery? This is Israel. God rescues them from out of Egypt. How long before they complain? Literally, the rescue is not even complete. Right? They get to the Red Sea, they're complaining about God already. He brings them through the Red Sea. They sin again. They bring them to the mountain where God is giving them the covenant, the commands to Moses, and they make a golden calf. It, 
It is a nation that demands God's long-suffering or they would have been annihilated. And here, after centuries of erratic failure with interspersed success, God says, what I demand of each of you is just that you come to me and turn from sin. What price does God demand? It's free. If you're thirsty, come. If you're hungry, come. Well, what do I owe you, God? What do I have to do? How long do I have to be good? How long do I have to be faithful before I'm welcomed back home? Just come home. Repent. Don't miss verse 7's point. Let the wicked forsake his way. That would be his behavior. And let the unrighteous man forsake, although the verb is not repeated, it's assumed, forsake his thoughts. God is not duped by the insincere confession of a poser. So if you think that you can repent on Sunday morning and party on Saturday night, and God's okay with you, you've got another thing coming. If you think you can pursue your agenda your whole life and have a deathbed confession and you hope God will be gracious to you, I would just warn you that verse, uh, verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. And God offers grace and the, the open door of repentance and then forgiveness. You better get it while the getting is good. There is a presumption that you'll be alive in later days, that your heart will be soft in later days, and then you'll come to the Lord after you've sown your wild oats. You have no guarantee. God may call your name, and you may enter into eternity in a moment's notice before your heart ever softens and turns to him. And so God calls the sinner with urgency, seek the Lord while he may be found. And he is near, so he's not hard to find. Call on him. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn from your wicked thoughts. Repent, and he will abundantly pardon. The word there speaks of this massive growth. It's, it's as though God is excited about the growth of his forgiveness. Like, wow, you're in debt for a little bit? I'll forgive you. You're in debt for a lot? Let me give you more forgiveness. You ever heard a sinner say, well, I'm so bad, God would never want me. So God says the reverse. He's like, you're so bad, you're exactly the guy I want. No one stretches out the forgiveness of God past its mercies and grace that are infinite. So God offers free and abundant life. And he says, come, Israel, come. Be full, be satisfied. I will raise up a son of David and he will be a light calling you to grace and mercy. And from him will be satisfying rivers that flow to everyone who's thirsty. So come. Seek the Lord while he might be found. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn from your wicked thoughts. Turn and be satisfied. Now perhaps a skeptic in Israel would say, well, I certainly as righteous as I might be, would not have patience for my neighbor. Isaiah calls and gives explanation then. He says in verse 8, For 
And then again in verse 10, four. And then in verse 12, four. These are explanations for why. He starts off by saying, for my thoughts in verse 8 are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. And praise God, he is so. (laughs) Again, my patience would have been done at Jacob. But if you look in the mirror and you're honest with yourself, wouldn't your patience be done with you? Aren't you thankful God's ways are not like ours? I mean, just consider if you were your employer and you, you employed yourself and your character was as feckless and erratic and faithless as it is towards God. I mean, did any of you fail to read your Bibles this week? Did any of you watch stuff on TV that was inappropriate, respond with anger and say things you shouldn't say to someone who you shouldn't ever say something like that to? Any of you find yourself lazy, angry, lustful, self-confident, proud? I mean, kind of depressing. If I was your employer, I'd fire you. I'd fire me first. I like we're just can. Can you just meditate on how sweet it is that God is not like us? If I was dating a girl who is as faithful as my heart is to the Lord, I'd break up. If I had a friend who is as faithless as I am to my Lord, I'd quit him. God is to be praised because he is not like us. God's ways are reliable. He has secured in an everlasting promise grace to all who come to the son of David. Come, seek the Lord while he might be found. Come. His ways are reliable. His words are reliable. I often hear this text stripped of this context. And there's so much hope in this text that frankly it could stand on its own and is worthy of its own sermon. Look in verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout and give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It gives an analogy from nature. God freely waters the earth, and we enjoy its fruits. And God has freely given us his word. Well, how do you know that it will produce fruit? Because God guarantees it with an everlasting covenant, with a promise that is secure. His word is unbreakable. It is more sure than the rains coming. It is more certain than the sun rising. It is more sure than the fact that you and I will sin again another day. God's word is reliable. My word that goes out of my mouth will accomplish all that I intend. Well, what has just gone out of God's mouth? A sure promise to do what? Incline your ear. Come and hear so that your soul may live. Come, everyone who thirsts, and you'll drink. We will feast and be satisfied. 
These promises are not only just given, they're given with a divine declaration that they will not return empty. God will never take back this promise. This promise is as secure as a promise given to David, a promise that God, a thousand years later, brings to fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ, whose death was not enough to stop God's promise. In fact, God raises him from the dead. How do you know God's word is true? Because he's a God of infinite patience and compassion and mercy. But he's also a God of faithfulness and integrity and truthfulness. And of course, we could maybe even suggest, if we were to meditate on this a little further, who is sovereign over the rain cloud, the humidity, and the wind currents? Is it not our God? It's not as though he's fighting against the weather. The weather is his servant. Right? Like, who sends the rain? God does. Who causes those drops of water to seep into the soil to give nutrients and feed those roots and those plants? Who cultivates every plant for his glory? Is it not our God? None of that is left to chance. None of that is a mere happenstance. None of that is a biological outcome of necessity. All of that is superintended by the immediate presence and governance of our God. This is what it means to have a God of providence and sovereignty. It means that he is present everywhere. If you read the end of Job, it's just a fascinating dialogue in which God humbles this man. But he says something like this. Who waters the plant in the desert that no one sees? The answer is who? God does. God's point is I not only water it, I care. And although no human eye will set uh, its sight on that plant, I care. I care about a little green stalk in the middle of the desert and I water it. Job, who are you? And it's the same God who sovereignly superintends the watering of desert flowers who superintends his word, that its ministry would be faithful to the end of the ages, that its work of cultivating life in the human heart, that its ability to convict through the ministry of the Holy Spirit would be alive and vibrant in the preaching and in the reading of the scriptures. My word goes out of my mouth like rain from my clouds. I send it to accomplish a purpose, and it will succeed. I have given a sure promise. It will be fulfilled. So how do you know God will keep his word to save you if you come to him? How do you know he satisfies with grace if you come to him hungry? How do you know? Because his word says so. And our God does not lie. And unlike others, he does not forget. Men of integrity forget. Bad men lie. God does neither. God will never forget his promises to you. Finally, the reward is reliable. Look in verse 12. Four. So this is the, the third kind of argument in his sequence here of why you should come to the Lord. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. That word for peace is shalom, and it speaks to the whole of life. That's why you get this as this Jewish greeting. It's not just peace as in you'll not be at war. It's that your life will be one of goodness and sweetness. Your home will be filled with peace. Your crops will take care of you. 
Your children will call you blessed. Your enemies will be at peace with you as well. And he calls upon all of Israel to understand, if you seek the Lord while he might be found, if you turn from your wicked ways, the outcome is sure because God's patience is never exhausted. His word is as secure as could possibly be. Right? Like, you could not be more secure than if God says it to be. He creates and sustains by the word of his power. His promises are certain. And finally, here's the outcome. So why would you not want this? If you keep reading, the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of thorns shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and its name, it's, it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. I think at its fullest sense, this is speaking of the renewed kingdom that Jesus will bring when he comes again. That restoration is permanent. Now, if you catch it, he's saying there, there's not going to be thorns. When did thorns come about? When did weeds get invented? This is a reverse of Adam's curse. This is, this is rising after the fall. This is sin's mark being removed on the earth. And he describes it by, by giving these, these personifications. The trees are clapping. We're Baptists. We're not sure about the clapping thing, but we're figuring it out. The trees are clapping. The whole, the, the hills are singing. I mean, this is like, the world is celebrating. This is Romans 8. Creation is groaning, waiting for the adoption of sons. All of creation is currently pressed under the bondage of sin. And one day, when that son of David comes, the one in whom we must trust, we get joy and peace. God freely offers life. He offers it. And then he extends it through the ministry of his own son, who is also an inheritor of David's throne. How do you get that? You seek the Lord. When? Now? Don't wait? And to, to, to what are the doubter? What are the skeptic? What are the Israelite who's hearing this? And, and, and he's looking around and seeing the wicked prosper. He's seeing his righteous king broker a deal in faithlessness with Egypt. And he's seeing around him how, how perhaps he might feel it's worth it to pursue his own agenda. No, we know that God is patient. So you've not passed the point in which there is no return. You are not so wicked, God will not save you. You have never gotten to a place in which God will not welcome you into his presence. Ever. And while there's breath in your lungs and pulse in your heart, turn to God. He will never, he will never take back his promises. His word is sure and the outcome is secure. The start of this sermon is actually, for at least my genesis of the sermon, is John 4. I want to take you to John quickly as we wrap up. Jesus preaches this. 
Do you know who he preaches this to? Some of you know John 4 well enough. Jesus is speaking to a Samaritan woman by the well that apparently she believes Jacob had dug. And as you come to this story of the woman at the well, this woman offers Jesus a drink. I want to take you down to verse 13 through 15. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this magic water because I don't ever want to be thirsty again. Right? Like, that's what she's thinking. She's thinking, I don't have to go to a well. I don't have to, I don't have to worry about washing cups. I get water that will never let me be thirsty again. Jesus says to her in verse 16, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. Why do you think Jesus does this? I think if we understand the words of Christ, and why he said what he said and then followed it up with his application, we have a woman who thinks she's going to get some physical water that's going to make her never thirsty again. And Jesus says, no, let me prove to you how thirsty you are. You've run through five marriages, and you've given up on the institution of marriage, and now you're shacked up with a guy who's not even your husband. You are thirsty, and you don't even know how much. You have put so much burden on the men in your life, you've wrecked your home. You need the water that I alone can give. You're thirsty. And you don't even know it. Come drink and get eternal life. I want you to look down then in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples are wondering if it's a granola bar in his pocket. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is finding deep satisfaction in walking with his father, obeying his father. They come in like, Hey, are you hungry? He's like, I am actually doing really good. Like, Hey, Bartholomew, did you sneak him something? I didn't do anything. Where'd you get the food, Jesus? Actually, I'm finding just rich satisfaction in the pleasure of my Father's will. Come with me to chapter 6. Jesus has just fed 5,000. The people are wanting political rescue. They say, okay, well, let's make him king. Jesus leaves them because he's not ready to be king. He's not come in his glory at this point. And they find him, and they want him to make more food. They want to see another miracle. They want to see him do the amazing things he's done before. Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound like Isaiah 55? 
But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That sounds exactly like Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's because God's word is sure. It will accomplish all that he says it will do. When God promises to save you, when you repent and believe in him, he will save you eternally. Someone living in heaven is no more secure eternally than the believer on earth. You are as secure as secure can be because what secures the citizen of heaven in heaven versus the citizen of earth on earth is not your geographic location. It is the word of God who saves. For this is the will of my Father. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up. There is no doubt. There is no loss of salvation possible for the one who trusts in Christ. God keeps his word. Notice how he started that. I'm the bread from heaven. You want to be satisfied? You guys are looking for a political king? You're looking for for someone who can do wonders and signs. You're looking for satisfaction everywhere. And you're looking at the only place God has centered the satisfaction that comes in salvation alone, the Son. Believe. And you'll never be hungry again. Chapter 7, at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. In verse 37, Jesus, on the last day of the great feast, it's one of, those, one of those illustrations that Israel had of God's provision. They would take this water and they would pour it out. And Jesus cries out with a loud voice, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus preaches Isaiah 55 again and again in the Gospel of John. And he's preaching it and saying it not only to unbelievers. And again, if you go back to ancient Israel, he's talking to people who would say they trust in God? When you look at the woman at the well, I can, I think with confidence, in that exposition, suggest to you that one of the ways we secure our marriages is by fellowshipping with God in faith. One of the ways we secure a righteous relationship to food is by walking with God. Okay, so like pastoral counsel, let me take a step back. There are probably people in here who struggle with anxiety. There are people who struggle in here with food disorders. There are people who are struggling with pornography. There are people in here who are struggling with um, a trust in money that is idolatry. There are people who have um, horrific homes because someone or many someones in the home are fighting for what they want. And we read Isaiah 55, come to me if you thirst. Come to me if you're hungry. And we're like, man, who's hungry? Our church. The anorexic is hungry for approval. Even from their own selves when they look in the mirror. And the man who's struggling with pornography is looking for a satisfaction that no woman can ever give him. Some of us struggle with eating. 
And no matter how much you eat, it's actually not what you're eating that's the problem. It's your heart. We just need to go back to gospel basics. Jesus sees people who long for political rescue, and he doesn't say vote Republican. He says, believe and walk with me. Israel's distracted. They're politically trusting in other armies. They have idols everywhere, whether they're idols that are literal or whether they're the idols of self-confidence or financial security. And Isaiah preaches to them, come and seek the Lord. Perhaps the multitude of problems in the Christian community in general is more a byproduct of particular counsel that doesn't call people to commune and walk with the Lord. That's how he handles someone who's on their sixth relationship. Right? Five marriages, shacked up with a guy now, and he says, you're thirsty. I have no idea if this is true, but it sounds really good, so I'm going to use it as an illustration. I have been told that oftentimes people are hungry because they're actually thirsty. Have you ever heard this before? Then oftentimes we, we misunderstand what's going on in our bodies, and so we go to the cupboard rather than the sink. And we eat food rather than drinking water. And so one of the solutions for people who are struggling with diet, at least by the diet experts, again, I am not validating whether or not this be true, but it works. As in, like, it works in the illustration. I don't know if it actually works. Drink more water. Just in case you weren't sure on what I was talking about drinking. <laughs> Some drinking will fill you up. I'm talking about water. Drink water. Drink it before your meal. Drink it when you're hungry. And a lot of times your hunger will go away. I just wonder spiritually if we are people who are misunderstanding, misunderstanding the, the hunger of our soul. That, that we are people going to the world's cupboard rather than the one who gives us living water. And we're wondering why we're not satisfied. And we're constantly going to the wrong thing, misunderstanding that what God's word says is we need to walk in fellowship with our Redeemer for satisfaction. God certainly does not promise us wealth. So if satisfaction comes through money, most of us are just, we're out of luck. If satisfaction comes through having a fantastic wife, my, sorry, fantastic husband, my wife is out of luck. Right, like some, some of us are looking across the aisle like, man, I, I don't think I'm ever going to satisfy. I know what I'm like, and I'm a loser. Sorry, honey. But if satisfaction comes through my wife getting a very thoughtful and sensitive husband, she is just out of luck. But if her satisfaction is in her walk with the Lord, then when I'm thoughtless, she can rejoice in her Lord and be satisfied in her marriage. Be satisfied in the financial circumstances that God has put you in. Be satisfied with the physical appearance you see in the mirror. Be satisfied in the work God has put you in. Be satisfied in the school that you are laboring hard to be educated by. 
Because those are not the things that actually are satisfying your soul. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who alone can satisfy what you actually want. So if I were to take you back to, at least in your minds, Isaiah 55, seek and walk with the Lord. Walk in repentance. Walk in his ways. Think his thoughts. Walk with the Lord. Whereas Jesus says, come, believe. That is not merely the entrance into, but the sustaining ethic of the Christian who is to be satisfied. Are you walking in faith? For all you singles out there, please don't wreck your marriages by thinking that you'll find the one that will satisfy. For those that are struggling, wanting more from this life, the one who secures you from financial distress, from relational loneliness, from political unease, his name is Jesus. Walk with him. Know him. Commune with him. If your Bible is dusty, your heart is thirsty. If you're not praying, your soul is hungry, and the world will never satisfy. Walk with your Lord. Seek him. He alone satisfies. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you so much for the grace of the revelation of Scripture. We would never have stumbled upon the truth that Jesus alone satisfies. That your promises are so sure is another grace. Not only do you give us your word, you secure them by promise upon promise. So that those who are looking for satisfaction outside of coming to you, we are confident we'll never find it. But Lord, you promise all those who turn to you, who turn from sin, who repent of wicked thoughts, who turn from wicked behaviors, they will be satisfied. Lord, for those who are believers and yet struggle with sin, I ask that you would renew a right relationship with them, that you would call them back home, that you'd bring to them the sweet gift of repentance, that they might once again be restored to fellowship with you. Father, for those who might not be saved, who are looking in on this conversation and hearing about the grace of Jesus Christ offered to all who come, Father, I ask that you would draw them by the Spirit to the Son, that they would believe in the life and the death of Jesus Christ for their sakes, hoping in his resurrection that it would one day give them the secure resurrection that it promises. Father, we pray that Sinners would trust you, that they would come and seek you, that you might be found. You are near. It is not a matter of the best seeker. It is not a matter of works to be done in order to secure your grace. It is simply a matter of trusting and seeking you. And so, Lord, I pray that our whole church would be filled with people who are passionate about their Lord, who love him and walk with him. Lord, secure our homes. Give us strength of faith so that we might face failing health, struggles economically, fears politically, with a confidence that our God is worth serving and trusting, and he is our shelter. He will protect us. He will secure us. 
He will walk with us. We are in his presence, and in that we can be confident and content. Lord, help us to know that godliness with contentment is, in fact, the greatest of gains. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen.